So we're going to move on to our first um, panel conversation. And uh, for this, um, well, really, we're going to talk about justice as it pertains to healthcare. That's it. That's our brief. No more specific than that. And for this, I would like to uh, invite our panelists um, now up, and I'll introduce them then once they're on. So Matthew Flinders, Richard Horton, Colin Lays, and Claire Short. So, morning and welcome. Um, so, Matthew Flinders, um, you met Richard Horton, was here yesterday. He's the editor of The Lancet. Colin Lays is honorary professor at Goldsmiths University, London, and Claire Short was Secretary of State for International Development and stood down as an MP in 2010, I think, after 30 years of service and is now chair of EITI, the Extractive Industries Transparencies Initiative. They're going to give this morning each from the podium a four or five minute brief. Um, and I've been challenged actually now, and I'm not, therefore I won't fail on it. I've been, the challenge is that everyone will talk for longer than five minutes um, if they get to the podium. And so no one is going to have a hope in hell of going a second over five minutes. Um, and then we're going to have a conversation uh, for a bit here and then draw you into that discussion. So I might ask, actually, uh, Colin, would you be all right to kick off? Is that all right? I'll pour you some water. OK, OK. <laughs> that was a GP, wasn't it? Now, I'm, <clears throat> after yesterday's wonderful excursions, I should confess to being a retired, jobbing political economist, trying to be straight in Rupert uh, Sheldrake's terminology. Uh, so I'm, I'm, it's, it's a bit of a come down, but uh, let me just do what I come to, to pitch. I'm reluctantly become caught up in the effort to prevent the destruction of the NHS. I see it being reduced to a basic or residual free service for the poor while everyone else who can afford it takes out tax-subsidized private medical insurance. I see NHS healthcare, which is 15% of the national budget, passing out of democratic control and accountability. We will have as much control over it in 10 years' time as we now do over the energy industry. I see trust in doctors declining from over 90%, the highest level in the world, towards the level in the United States, where doctors are trusted less than nurses and less than high school teachers. <coughs> a quick anecdote, which by my telling it becomes a case study. I, <coughs> I fell and had a black eye and had to go and see the ophthalmological unit in the Royal Free. And when I was done, they said, it's all fine, but you've got some cataract, and when you feel ready, we'd be like to do it. And they sent a letter to the GP, my GP, 
saying this and how pleased they'd be to do it. And I thought, how touching of them. And then I thought, no, actually, they want the income from doing it because they're afraid that I might choose. And I wouldn't. I had to be given the choice of choosing something else. So the question is, how badly do I need that cataract? Well, of course, it's something you can decide for yourself because it affects your sight. But that's the first time in my experience of the NHS, which has been quite extensive, good, uh, but off and on, uh, that I've wondered, here is medical advice being given to me, which has got a strong financial component to it. So a health service that was the admiration of the world and a core institution of British national life in England, I think is destined to be expressed by an expensive El Dorado for the private health uh, industry. I want to say something about Winterbourne View. Um, I'll get to it quickly, but first of all, let me say that this whole trajectory has been legitimated by a series of ideological constructs or memes, as Paul Mason would call them, such as that there is the demand for healthcare is infinite, uh, the cost of healthcare inevitably rises faster than other costs, and so on. And I want just to focus on the biggest one of all, the most fundamental one, which is basic to current government policy, and that is <coughs> the argument that markets are more efficient. Now, it's very interesting. In 2003, the Treasury, no less, published a paper on productivity and public services which explained why markets cannot be efficient in delivering health care. Four reasons. First of all, markets to be efficient need perfect information, whereas notoriously information asymmetry between doctors and people rules that out. Secondly, efficient markets must be competitive, whereas in healthcare, a distinct element, sometimes a very powerful element of monopoly is usually present. Thirdly, contracts are fundamental to markets, but drawing up a contract to deliver healthcare to a certain standard, given the complexity of health, is almost impossible. And fourthly, you can't in the end transfer absolute risk to private owners because people's lives are at stake. The Treasury's analysis was, of course, ignored. So what happened? Well, among the other things that happened, there was Winterbourne View. Uh, <coughs> Colin, you have about a minute. I've got a minute left. Yeah. Okay, what I want to say is in Winterbourne View, terrible tragedy. Uh, it's always described as a scandal, but really it's a tragedy. Uh, what happened to those unfortunate, sad people. The parents and councils that were making the contracts had no information. Uh, there was a clear uh, lack of competition. They were getting 3,500 pounds a week per patient in what the serious case review described as a support staff-led institution. And risk was not transferred to the owners. Castlebeck Holdings got off scot-free. Uh, what, what do I conclude from this? Well, is the evidence good? Unfortunately, I think it is. Is it atypical? We don't know because private sector isn't open to inspection except when there's a scandal and we hear the details. But Panorama found that similar problems seem to be emerging in some of the homes that the patients were transferred to. 
the Care Quality Commission inspected 54 other units run by Castlebeck and found serious problems in a high proportion of them. And then there's a whole string of other scandals that we know. What I think is going on is that the logic of non market inefficiency is being let loose upon the NHS and <coughs> the end of it uh, will be more, uh, in general, I mean, we'll have more scandals, that's for sure, but what we will have is a general degradation of the quality of service. As somebody said yesterday, the poor will get sicker, and that's not my conception of a just society. Can I stop the you there? Is that all right on that note? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Richard Horson. Thanks, Sam. Ever since Plato in the Republic wrote that justice means minding one's own business, we've been in trouble. And medicine hasn't helped very often. We're taught in medicine to see the body as an organism, and a key feature of an organism is autoregulation. An injury, a wound to the body, will lead naturally to a compensation, repair, and a return to stability. Too often we apply the metaphor of the body to our society. Injuries to the social body will be absorbed and repaired. Not so. Biology has deceived us. There is no normal in our society. There is no homeostasis. There is no autoregulation. What that means is that you and I together have to construct what we think of as a just society. It's our choices and only our choices that will deliver justice. But what is justice? The usual way we think about justice is as a series of outcomes, the distribution of certain goods of which we're here to talk about health. And we might choose the language of rights, the progressive realization of the highest attainable standard of health for all. But the problem, the problem with that is that health is not only a product of the health system alone. As Michael Marmot has shown repeatedly over many years, the economic conditions in which we live are major determinants of health. And the economic crisis that is afflicting our world today is killing individuals in our world. The health system is not enough unless we focus on issues around, for example, early child development, labor markets, social protection, housing, even the larger context of climate change, we will not achieve justice for health. How many of you have read, this is a rhetorical question, the NHS mandate published this month? Does it offer that broader vision for a just society? There are many good things in it. Preventing premature mortality, improving quality of life, recovering from illness and injury, having a positive experience of care. But there is no commitment to that broader vision of a just society. So the challenge that we face is that we have a universal principle of justice for health, the highest attainable standard of health progressively realized. But we have a government, we now have an NHS, that will not be able to create the conditions for that principle to be fully realized. So. An alternative. 
Justice is not simply the distribution of goods and outcomes. Justice is conflict, in Stuart Hampshire's memorable phrase. Justice is the perpetual struggle for a better society. It's not only the end point that matters, but how we get there. Justice is the fairness of our procedures, our institutions for resolving, resolving differences amongst us. It is about sharpening our democracy. It is about choosing our leaders, holding each other accountable for what we say and do. What matters is the quality of our deliberation, our investigation, our argument. Widening the circumference of that deliberation, as we are doing here today, I believe, by doing our utmost to listen as well as to speak, to hear the other side. And medicine here might just have a special contribution to make to this sharpening of our democracy. Because the best health professionals listen and observe well. For justice, we all need to listen and observe a good deal better. And then we speak, we act, until justice is achieved. I don't know if anyone saw that, but Claire Short's already hit Richard Horton. <laughs> <laughs> Did we get a picture? Yep. Thank you. I didn't hit him, it was a pat on the back <laughs> for his passion about justice. As we all know, in the history of health provision in this country, it was the provision of clean water and sanitation that massively, massively improved health outcomes for people at the, in the Industrial Revolution rather than the provision of um, a healthcare service individually delivered. Uh, in the world, half of humanity has no sanitation. Um, in India, 42% of children are stunted. You know, it isn't always lack of access to food. It's sometimes not having clean water and therefore constant diarrhea and draining away of nutrients and so on. Uh, Britain's just with, announced it's withdrawing its development program from India because uh, it's now a lower middle income country and it has a nuclear program. But this is, I'm getting to what's justice? Who's it for? Do we have a development program with India because of that continent from which we extracted so much and profited so much that that helped to get us to the stage of development we're at. So it's not that we don't owe things to India, but do we have it because we want a relationship with the government of India or do we have it because the people of India deserve justice and a decent life and the children deserve their little bodies and brains to be developed enough for them to be themselves. Uh, justice is surely caring equally for all worldwide and extending dignity and the chances of a dignified life to all. In fact, in the um, International Convention on Human Rights, that's the conception. It, it describes the rights we all need to be a human in all the best of us freedom to speak, think, be engaged with culture, be educated, have some health care, etc. And then it says it's the duty of 
all governments to strive to achieve all these things for all their people and all of us to seek to strive to achieve all of these things for all people. And that must be what justice is. Um, the fulfilment of the best of the humanity of everyone and the chance, the ordering our world and society in a way that um, provides that for everyone. And the provision of healthcare, decent health is, is fundamental to a decent life and the chance to be who you are. There's a very important book, um, one of the most important books I've read in some years called The Spirit Level um, by two uh, British epidemiologists that does this fantastic job just comparing um, social outcomes in all the OECD countries, so the rich countries of the world. And it shows systematically and authoritatively that the more unequal the society, the more mental health problems, teenage pregnancies, dropout from education, uh, abuse of alcohol and, and drugs, etc., etc., etc. That in the wealthier societies, the level of inequality leads to all sorts of outcomes, including health outcome, outcomes that are damaging. So surely this is to do with justice. And if in order to have proper health care, we have to have water and sanitation, then people who care about people's health have to have a view about how unequal a society is acceptable, because we know it's so destructive and damaging to people's health and well-being if societies become very unequal. We're living in this atomized, neoliberal, marketized time that's coming to an end, I believe. I think the international crisis um, is the beginning of the end, and we're going to have a lot of turbulence and trouble as people struggle for a different way of looking at the world and how it should be organized. And I think the, re the reason, by the way, people are cynical about politics is because if politicians run that atomized, marketized society, no one is inspired and it makes people miserable. Um, and this is all, you can't be a healthcare professional and not be part of this unless you accept that you're just a part of the atomization and the pretense that there's a technical technocratic fix for all ills. Um, and it was, in my constituency advice bureau, people would come, maybe about a housing problem or something else, and they'd start bringing out of their bag boxes of pills to tell me how unwell they were, as though, as though that gave them a status, and, and as though that then I would listen to them, and then I would care enough, and I'd say, please, put those away. Tell me what the problem is. You know, you don't have to prove it to me. But there's something going on here that things are so miserable that being ill and having a label is some kind of status. Um, and that's clearly <coughs> deeply unhealthy. The chief pharmacist in my local um, hospital said, you know, most pharmacists don't take any pills, but we've got to get out from behind the counter because doctors keep giving people all these different pills and actually they all interact against each other and they make people ill. And they, ha they run the um, West Midlands unit for, you know, people who've got some terrible reaction to their, their pills. Um, and, you know, some people die of the medication or, or nearly die or somebody rings up a city hospital and gets some answers to avoid some sort of terrible health crisis as a result of the medication they've been given. In my local leisure centre in Hansworth, the local NHS started an experiment because the health indicators in that local community were so poor, of providing free 
uh, swimming and access to the gym. And the place was absolutely crowded out. I absolutely believed in it ideologically, but it did crowd my swimming. <laughs> now, yeah, the pity just, of that is now, under, another, it's now under threat, minute. of course. That right? yeah. Okay, that's my time. You, you get my point. You can't care as medics without, I agree, without caring about the state of society and the world. We're in a terrible state. It wouldn't be hard to do better than this. <laughs> Okay, I won't take five minutes. I'll just have two minutes to try and kind of pull some of those strands together. I mean, I don't think... I'd like to think we maybe... Things aren't as bad as, as Claire maybe leads us to suggest. If you look at public trust ratings, it's quite true that doctors still remain at the top in terms of high levels of public trust. Politicians are second from bottom, but I'm really always pleased to see that journalists are always right at the bottom. <laughs> and as long as that continues, I will be a happy man. But there, there is an issue here that it's quite clear that the relationship between politics and the market has become unbalanced. It's shifted too far. And if you go back to Crick's work, the role of democratic politics was, off, was to often offer a counterweight towards the market. And, and Colin is absolutely right. There is absolutely no academic research that shows private sector organisations are any more efficient in delivering public services than the public services themselves. If you look at private prisons, the reason they deliver uh, a cheaper cost per night per prisoner is because generally the prisoners are locked up for a lot more time and receive far less training, which means when they're released they can't cope, recidivism increase, but recidivism falls to police budgets, therefore the prison sector doesn't mind so much. The second issue here is I think there's an issue about politics with what Richard was saying. That in a sense, there is a, a social issue about the nanny state and about bureaucrats and politicians interfering in our lives. The public are, are still don't agree with paying more tax. They don't agree with more laws to affect the way they live their lives. And yet, actually, I'm not too worried about the nanny state because I think the state actually does a lot of good and we should be a bit more honest about standing up and trumpeting for those areas where the state does deliver benefits. The final point is this notion of a just society. I think Claire was incredibly important to broaden our horizons, that it's not just about the UK and Western Europe, it's a global issue. I would just push this a little bit further, that actually my concern for a just society, it's not about the UK or Europe, it isn't really with the developing world. My deep concern for a just society is about future generations. It's looking to the future in a time manner. The climate change challenge is here. It is putting incredibly serious, you know, dramatically, it just incredibly dangerous challenges for the future of our society globally. And yet, if you wanted to argue that politics is failing, it is in relation to climate change that politics is failing. Because whether we like it or not, as happens often in healthcare, the public often don't respond unless they can see a tangible danger themselves. We all know smoking's bad, but young people smoke because the dangers are somewhere in advance and they can't really see them or understand them. The problem with climate change is, if we don't respond now, we're going to leave a very unjust state of affairs, not just for my children, but my children's children and all our children. So it's not just a just society here today in the world as we stand, it's also looking to the future. <laughs>